Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tongue Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and joining me today is field recordist and sound designer Melissa Pons. Melissa just released an album called Wolf Soundscapes on Bandcamp that was funded by the field recording community on Kofi. And Melissa, just to get started, for people that don't know who you are yet, how did you get into sound? Where did you get started? So I did study music production and technology in Porto because I was thinking that I would really like to be a sound engineer in live music. And around the time that I was actually preparing to go into the university, because there were specific exams and it was not the easiest to get into, I, I started to listen to a lot of different music from, from what I was used to. I, I was very much into, you know, 70s rock <laughs> uh, from my childhood. And then I started to listen to things like Chroma Key, which is uh, uh, Kevin Moore's project from, uh, I think it was a first keyboard player in Dream Theater, which was also something that was so much into it at the time. And uh, something that uh, really got my attention from that, and I think things started to shift for me, was that I started to understand that sound had a really uh, powerful way of conveying emotions. So I started to understand this beyond just musicality, as if I can say that. I thought this was very, very interesting so this different sort of aesthetics in music really got me thinking like how sound can be used in such a powerful way other than guitar riffs and drums and piano vocals and stuff like that. And a little bit later, maybe a year later, I started to hang out with people that were studying cinema or like audiovisual media. I started to get into recording sound in films, you know, production mixing. And I was just very excited about everything. Everything seemed very, very interesting. And so during school, as I'm studying music production and technology, I'm already moving to like sound design because then I started to understand that sound is used as a powerful tool to convey emotions and tell stories and so on. And so I get completely hooked. I completely drop off being an engineer uh, doing live music. And then I think it was the normal road of starting to work in some short films with friends. I had just some short projects where I was both doing the sound on set and then doing sound design. And I got more and more enthusiastic about it. And then I was certain that that was the thing that I wanted to do. And... Around the same time, also in school, I had a seminar. So the program was obviously very focused on music production, but there was some seminars or like optional classes in which I could have other disciplines. And we had sound design like twice with two different people. And I was very, very interesting in it. I think probably more than the rest of the class because I think they were very orientated to, to music. And one of the teachers, I, I think he probably understood that I was very into it. So he invited me to go with his main class to a field recording trip in the countryside in Portugal. I don't think I've ever been in the countryside in Portugal before. This was, I think, 2012. I was in my, I think, last year of school. And I had no idea what I was doing when I was there. I think it was about three to four days and I had really good equipment to record ambiences, which is something I didn't get in, in school because, again, it was music-based or focused. I had no idea. I was just sitting there for hours recording a river 
until there was one point that we drove back home uh, at night and this professor, I'm going to say his name because without him even knowing, I think he, he made a huge difference in my life. So his name is Marco Conceição. <laughs> he opens the van as we get uh, home with, like, with all the students and he's like, oh, I'm going to get my microphones immediately. And I'm like, yeah, why? And like, can't you hear? <laughs> and there was this amazing insect night song. And I was like, yeah, right. So this is it. And then I think from that, I started to be very attentive to what I was listening in this trip. And it completely changed for me how I was perceiving my environments and the beauty I found in you know the sounds around us, especially nature. I recorded urban stuff as well after that, but, but I'm really hooked on nature. I also really like to be in forests and very natural environments. And... That was kind of it. I was lucky because I was I always had, you know, friends or acquaintances that were able to borrow me equipment to record around that time. So I always had like quite good references on on sound equipment. I didn't start like with a portable recorder like a Zoom. It's no problem at all, but I was lucky to have like sound devices and yeah, good microphones. And I was hooked. From then, I continued trying to do, you know, some small sound design gigs online. In Portugal, it's very difficult. The industry is small. Mm -hmm. The wages are not very good, but that's a problem for the whole country, <laughs> though. So I had an opportunity to actually go to Sweden in 2014. After I've done half of a master's degree in media sound design, but I was not really into like all the multimedia stuff in it. It was not very specific. And when I come to Sweden, I was extremely lucky because I started to work in Stockholm in a company called Chimney. And I think they have a lot of offices now in the United States as well, in Los Angeles. I'm not sure in Canada yet. And I met a really really nice people there very very good sound designers that got me started in a very professional setting right like the whole thing at some point i was able to actually drop the production gigs and i've done some stuff some shorts a couple of features tv series like crime scandinavian stuff as a, as a sound editor i've done a lot of you know, M&Es and quality control and, and stuff like that. As I was sort of a newbie starting, I was having that kind of roles. That's interesting. Like, what is the quality control day-to-day -day like? I'm sorry, I'm going to divert here, but... Sure, sure, <laughs> like... sure. So I, I was doing this for this uh, show called 100 Codes and then some others. And I had to sit in a room and being paid to watch series. <laughs> <laughs> And I just had to make sure that I was only doing it for audio, of course. Were you running it through things that were detecting peaks and overs, et cetera, and then you were doing a secondary pass? Or were you having to detect all of that in real time? I was having to detect all of that in real time. Wow. So we were not using any sort of like external detector. So if the mix was with the correct levels, if there was no clips, no problems at all. Everything had to run uh, smoothly. And eventually, if there would be any sort of mistake or a problem, then I would have to fix it. You would have to fix it? Yeah. Because I worked also on the show, so I had access to the project. So I'll just have to go into the session and fix, you know, some break that would happen. It didn't happen that often, but yeah, once in a while. Hmm. 
also then Germany put a lot of money into Swedish productions. And then we would send to Germany and then they would come like with these really harsh reports. I remember because then they had like <laughs> the machines or programs that, that do that. And, it's, and it comes in red, like 16 error. And it comes in red, like really onto your face. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it would happen, like they would take something that would be like a clip or something. And maybe it was just like a water drop somewhere in the sound design. But I had to be super, super, super focused on that. A lot of responsibility, but, but it, went, it went fine. Hmm. It reminds me, several episodes back, we had the Tonstorm guys on and, mm. and they're German. And they were talking about their process where they would get all these recordings and they would put them through a limiter and just max the thing all the way up what? and listen to it and, and try and detect even oh. the tiniest little imperfections in the recordings and scrub those things out before oh, wow. they would release it. Because in their minds, like if it was in there and then they saw the sounds and then I put it through a limiter and discover it that way, then that would be below their standards. It's a very, I don't know, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a super meticulous, detail-oriented culture. Yeah, 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 it is. And nowadays with uh, my field recordings, I it's also I'm a bit conflicted because Usually it's very quiet, right? It's really, really quiet. But when I'm editing and I'm monitoring, I have it really loud so I can actually detect anything that might happen. But then I'm like, but this is not meant to be heard this loud. And I'm having a little bit of a different perception. But but for, you know, tracing errors and stuff like that, I think it's fine. Yeah. I don't use limiter though, but but I do listen many, many, many times before I send it or publish to make sure everything is, is working well. So the thing that I heard was that how important some of the people were along your path, the professor that uh, showed an understanding and an interest and, mm -hmm. the, and the team of people that were around you. I'm learning this in some of my, in some of my other personal pursuits right now too, how important the community around you and, mm -hmm. and not only your peers, but also your role models can mm -hmm. be in directing you down a certain path or at least validating your own, your right. own thoughts and experiences mm -hmm. as you're, as you're discovering things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have been, when you got, you backed up the project, the Wolf project. And when you came back and you, you know, we have generous, really, really nice things to say. I was really, really happy because I, I told you then I'm, Sometimes I deal with imposter syndrome. We all do. <laughs> I guess so. And I guess it's also, maybe we have, it's a bit weird for me to say this, but maybe we have a sense of keeping humble with our jobs. Like I don't see almost anyone of us having an attitude that we know everything and we're genius in our crafts. I think we keep evolving and we have to keep learning. But I was really, really happy also because, Renee, I remember you from like 15 years ago on the Sound Design Stock Exchange or something like that. <laughs> I've been around for too long, Melissa. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember your name. So it, that's the thing. I don't, in a way, I, I don't want to. And I think most of us at least don't want to rely on, understand how valuable our work is through the validation of others, not exclusively. It's great that we have it, of course. But it's also about like trusting our work and having references, but it's, it's a shaky area, I think. It's a bit gray sometimes, but I was so, so, so happy because I usually I'm doing something and I think, ah, this is great. This is going to be such a great project. I'm so happy. 
And then I'm meditating like, this is amazing. Look at what I recorded last night. This is so great. And then when I'm advanced and <laughs> maybe I structure the album, I'm structuring and then I'm going through everything over and over and over. And I think, wow, maybe this is really shitty. I have no idea. And there's a point I have actually no idea if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing or just a, something that is not relevant or special or anything like that. I've been thinking a lot about this and I think that it's fine to question our work a bit because I think that's also how we evolve. I don't think we should be, you know, arrogant about our, our own stuff. And I think as long as we try to keep some hu humbleness, that's, that's a word, right? Uh, as we try to keep some humble, humbleness. And then at some point in the middle of all that, mm. you have this opportunity to go to the Wolf Sanctuary yeah. and record. So, so tell us about how all of that came about and what was it that caused you to reach out to the community and take the risk and put the project together? Yeah, so it actually goes back to um, another field recordist in Germany called Nils Mosch. He contacted me in the beginning of the year, I think, to ask if I was interested in, in collaborating uh, in a project with him in, in Germany because there was a really interesting fund from an instit art institution that wanted to support artists in Essen, where he's located, and person from another location. And he already had thought about, you know, one or two themes, and it shifted a bit, but it actually came to a very interesting concept. So it really starts on him. In that area where he is, there is a wolf, a she-wolf called Gloria, and it's extremely controversial because a lot of people don't want the wolves around. They're afraid it's going to, you know, eat their farm animals, their children. Uh, <laughs> it's very controversial. But on the other hand, there is also another community that understands that wolves are very necessary in the systems that they exist. And that maybe we invaded their territory. So it's not the opposite that is happening. And of course, it's unfortunate that someone loses their animals and we decided that it would be very interesting to approach a work like this as sort of is in a binary concept. And so he's been interviewing people and we wanted to record the soundscapes of the areas they are in, possibly record them if we can, but it's a wolf. So there's all this mystical thing about this animal and in many cultures is regarded as a very evil creatures, especially where there's Christian tradition and... We wanted to do this by recording and then presenting on a, a sound installation as a multi-channel with music composition as well and sort of present these two sides of it. Then uh, we thought it was a good idea. We were both excited. We spent days and days doing the application and then we didn't get the funding. <laughs> but we really wanted to do it anyway. We really wanted to do it. And then I was researching what's going on here in Spain and Portugal. And there's the Iberian Wolf. And then I found out about this center, which is only like three hours away from where I've been staying. I contacted them, presenting, seeing who I was, what I did, and if it would be possible for me to volunteer that and be able to record as much as I wanted. And they said yes. And then I thought, okay, this is, this is really great. But I lost my Sennheiser in Sweden in 2018 recording. And dropped off a cliff in snow. Yes, it hurts very much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go there with my 
Zoom H6, you know. So I started to look into the using microphones because they were affordable and I was checking some websites where they were even comparing them to the DPAs and so on. I have lost my job recently. I was starting to restructure everything. So it was a very, very complicated period around that time. But everything was really, really unstable. But I thought, damn, I really, really want to do this. So I don't care. I just go ahead and I put the campaign on so I'm able to, you know, afford everything. And first I thought, yeah, this is not going to work. And then I had a really, really, really good response. And I was really, really happy about it and allowed to do it. platform that you chose for the campaign was Kofi. Yeah. Um, why did you choose that instead of, you know, Kickstarter or GoFundMe or any of the others? Um, that's a good question. I think I've seen a couple of field recordists using Ko-Fi. I always had the idea that Kickstarter, you know, to be successful, maybe doing a video of myself and explaining the project. And I thought I didn't really want that much. But since the sound community on Twitter has been really, really supportive and, you know, paying attention to what people are doing, I thought maybe I don't need all of this. Maybe I just need to go on Twitter and, of course, have like all the documentation on the Ko-Fi page that allowed to. Also, they don't charge anything. They don't charge any fees. That's great. And it was simple. I think it was more. It was very, very simple. It just really hit it off really well. And you ended up um, easily hitting your targets. Yeah. Pretty like quickly. Like in six hours. <laughs> wow. It was great. Yeah, That's great. it was great. I think people thought it was a very cool project. Uh, I was not expecting that, you know, it had such wrong I was super excited. I was super excited. And I think the community is very supportive of these types mm-hmm. of things. I did this, I mean, way back in the day, I did a Kickstarter for recording a trolley that was uptown over here. Because you can go rent the trolleys out for, you know, a couple hundred bucks mm-hmm. and no one else could get on the trolley but you. And so that's what we did. We went and rented out a trolley and we just mic'd the thing up. And it was one of those things that I did the same thing. You know, reach out to the community, say, hey, I want to do this thing. There's a little bit of upfront cost. You guys help me cover the cost. Everyone gets the sounds. And people are really into that, yeah. especially when they're interesting projects like that or when it's unique opportunities like what you have with the Wolf Sanctuary that, you know, I could never personally gain access to. The fact that you're out there, it was a no brainer for me to be like, yes, I want in on mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think it touched other people the same, more or less the same way that you're experiencing. And it's really not every day you can just, you know, go to a place and you have wolves around you. And they do beautiful sounds. It's it's fascinating creatures. So I think it was a a good mix of of factors. So talk about the budget a little bit, about what you anticipated your expenses to be and how well you did with regards to uh, targeting what you needed to raise. I think I calculated like all my expenses to very precisely with trips, you know, even going from a bus from here to there, uh, because it, that was like far away, like very much in the countryside. And the only thing I didn't account for was actually just maybe food, because I would have to have it regardless. <laughs> and so first was the the price for the equipment. So the using microphones and the accessories. And those are the Uzi, Lom, The Pro, yeah. And I ended up not using them because they only arrived in November, I think. Ah. And I had that. I had the trips staying there as well. It was not the cheapest. I think it was like 270 euro or something like that, mm-hmm. something around that. Yeah, I think it was 
these three, I mean, the PayPal fee as well, I had really had to put that into account so I wouldn't go negative. And I think people got so excited that I think I got around 150% of, you know, the target and just came to a point I went on Twitter and said, you know, stop it. I, I have enough. <laughs> Save your money. <laughs> because for the project, I really didn't need anything else. So I, I was I was well backed up. That was that was great. And uh, an artist in Barcelona that we've been talking, you know, here and there for a while, he said, look, I'm not using my Sennheiser 8040. Do you want me to ship them to you and you can use them on the project? I'm like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what happened. And so uh, I was able to record with these ones. And actually now I was able to purchase them like long-term purchase, but I'm really happy that I have them back. Like I have my microphones back. Yeah. So even that outcome was really wonderful. It's the power of the community coming together and not only funding you, but also, you know, lending you the equipment to get it done. Yeah. The other thing you had to contend with was the personal interactions with people at the Wolf Sanctuary. So how did, how did all of that go? Uh, it was, honestly, it was a bit complicated. So it was me, two girls that were volunteering. They were, one was studying veterinary um, mm-hmm. medicine and the other was studying animal care. One was Portuguese and the other was from the Netherlands, I think. The thing is that they are 21 years old. <laughs> and then I really felt the gap, you know, I just turned 34. I really felt the gap but with respect to the people that work in the center, were only three people. They were great. I was very inspired by the way they think about nature and they think about working with wolves. They really try that the environment that they have there is the most possible close to a wild situation. Trying to make the wolves, you know, do tricks or anything like that. All of that sort of like domestication, they, they are hiling against that. I've learned a lot. I deconstructed a lot of, you know, things that I thought, apparently the terms alpha and, and you know, submissive wolf, it's not even used anymore. It's not a true thing. That was very, very interesting to hear, you know, yeah. their experiences and all they had to say because they've been working there for at least 10 years or something like that. And they've been following wolves for all this time from babies until they are old. But at the beginning, I thought they were not really understanding because I don't see my work as documental or scientific in any way. It could be. I mean, if people want to analyze it, and I think that's interesting, but I think I've been thinking a lot about this and I I just really go after beauty somehow, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't want to be lame, but it's just, I think it's beautiful. I think nature has, you know, beautiful sounds and a lot to teach. So I do go after that. And I think I was a bit like out of phase with with that. But when the album came out, then people from the center, they replied, this is really beautiful, you know. So I think maybe it just kind of reached people that way after that. But I think it was, you know, weird that, okay, we're going to feel the wolves. I really want to record them. And they're like, yeah, but he's going to be afraid of the microphones. And they were, of course. And I just, I really try not to be on the way of the main thing, which is to take care of them. So I try to be careful not to interfere. Yeah. And I've done it, not really on purpose, you know, but it just, it just happens. Um, what was the physical space like where the wolves were at? Is it an enclosed yeah. space? Um, exactly. So they are in, uh, the place is 18 hectares, mm-hmm. you say, and 
and there are, I think, about seven enclosures, six or seven. They are in groups. Some are a bit smaller. The others are really, really large. Some we cannot really go to the edge of them. So there is this center part that is surrounded by several enclosures. But it's, it has a lot of hills and like sort of the right vegetation to get very, very close to their natural habitat. What's the nature of the enclosures? Is it just wire fences or, yeah. or what is it? it is? Just yeah. wire fences, like tall, um, maybe almost three meters, perhaps. Yeah. While you were there in your day to day, something that you were doing was writing emails to us every mm -hmm. single day. Mm -hmm. And some of the things you were discussing in the emails was the physical nature of getting down there and recording. What was that like? Like, what did you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis while you were down there recording the wolves? Well, I had to cut on sleep a lot. I could record from several locations inside the place where I was. And I couldn't, you know, really predict anything. I was not even sure if I was going to get anything particularly special from them. Were you nervous about that? Yeah, that's the imposter syndrome really kicked in. I was like, okay, so I got money for this more than I asked, and maybe I'm going to go home with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I was also very excited on the first day because we just had a meeting in the afternoon and then they gave me a list of, you know, all the animals that they knew that have been observed there. And it was interesting and big list and... I also heard a little bit while I was there in the afternoon and we walked into this very beautiful forest patch that was kind of centered to four enclosures. It stayed in the middle and I was told that there would be a lot of owls there that is typical to hear them. And that was the first day, the first night I, I had my microphones in there and I was very lucky immediately, like immediately I was really, really lucky because the wolves really howled around that place. So it happened almost every day. And on a day-to-day -day basis, so I usually went up at around like 4, 5 a.m. At this point, I was picking up the microphones and maybe move them to another place, making sure it wasn't raining or anything. I woke up with nightmares from that. <laughs> I was dreaming, everything was like soaked. So I was going to do that, moving the microphones, you know, back up while I'm doing all these things and move them to a new location, come back to the little cottage I was, listen to everything. Or I didn't have that much time to listen to everything, but I was trying already to get some work done. And then at nine, usually I had to go down and start to cut 20, 30 kilos of flesh to feed the wolves. Ah. Yeah. And so, of course, at this point I was not recording because people are moving around the center. So there will be no, no point. 
I would do this work in the morning and sometimes we would have to, you know, saw trees and, you know, take care of the terrain and fences and stuff like that during the afternoon. There was a couple of days I was able to record during lunchtime as well, if it was quiet enough. And after the day was finished around 5.36, I would go again, pick my microphones, the equipment and choose a new location or decide. I mean, of course, these decisions are also every time were based on what I had the day before. And then and go and record again that I was deciding if I was uh, sitting for a while close to the equipment or if I would just, you know, leave them there and go home because there's always an interference question. And it was very noticeable because if I was around, especially the first days, the wolves are still getting used to me or to any new people that would be there and they can smell us from a long distance. And so I really needed to hide behind trees and be a little bit far away. Otherwise they would be shy and, you know, they wouldn't howl the same way as if they perhaps thought that they were alone. And that was it every day on weekends. There was just maybe two hours of work. And so I did record more extensively, but it was also very noisy days. Uh, so some of that was very, very frustrating, but that's, that happens. That's part of the labor. What kind of noise were you having to deal with? So depending on the, uh, how the wind was blowing, in which direction, I could get sound from uh, villages around far, but it would come. And physical geography was so complex that it was really hard to control. So one thing that started to freak me out that I've never encountered before, and I think this was actually the field recording trip where I learned more, was that on one side, oh, I'm recording with a ORTF, so on one side, I would get, you know, this airy sound with a certain tone. And then on the other side, I had another. And it's natural. There's no problem. But I thought, this is not as beautiful as I want it to be. <laughs> you know, there was like this sort of imbalance. It's really, really different tone. And this got me a bit frustrated. And there are so many elements you could play with. So I maybe could, you know, move the microphones a little bit or move upwards to a hill. But then there will always be another sort of issues. So I ended up you know, spending time adjusting sometimes like five centimeters and just try to get it as balanced as possible. On days where the wind was on my favor, this was not a problem. And this is just a single ORTF pair that you have up. You don't have 15 mics up. You just have one pair. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. The first Saturday, no, Sunday that I was there, I thought it was going to be really cool. I was very excited because uh, we wouldn't be working at the Wolf Center. So the people were not there. It's just me and these two other girls that were volunteering but I woke up and there were people hunting on this park nearby and I could hear the shots and the many, many dogs almost went to the thrash. Those recordings, they had like a red tag on my hard drives because it was really, you know, disturbing. Uh, it's completely impossible to clean up. What was the emotion you had when you came across that? Because you were listening to the recordings after the fact, right? Yeah, I, I hear it happening. They started pretty early, so I was going up extremely early, right? And I was very excited, and I opened the, you know, the bedroom windows, and I, I just felt something was a bit different. It was just this is this is weird, and it seemed like there was like this sort of like uncomfortable agitation. And then I started to listen a bit more closely, and there was a lot of dogs, and then I started to hear like I don't know rifle shooting or something like that. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, they do have this hunting thing here and actually they're doing it today. And I also thought I could also have prepared for this or at least anticipated, you know, and maybe plan things well. So that's another lesson learned. 
Yeah, that day the recordings were thrash, sadly. <laughs> yeah, it's an important thing to be able to to meet those things and continue forward. It's yeah. easy to get discouraged when something like that that's out of your control mm -hmm. shows up because, you know, sound is just going to flow where it's going to flow. Yeah. And that type of resilience is an incredibly important thing to make mm -hmm. an excursion like this turn into something after the fact. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, fortunately, I still had like another week and uh, another day to go. I did record. I still record because I, you never know. You can find something interesting and, you know, maybe those riffle shots are going to be useful for, for something else in the future. Um, it's not that I actually thrash the material that I, I get with. But from then I understood, okay, I cannot waste even like two hours in a day. I really need to get as much, you know, material as possible. And it was tiring, but it's worth it. I'm, I'm very happy. I don't regret anything. <laughs> What's funny is, you know, at the end of every day, you would put together these long, beautiful emails and send Thank them out to you. everyone that had that had backed you yeah. for this trip. And when the email from that day came in, I got mad with you. <laughs> I was mad. Why? Why? You didn't tell me about this. <laughs> no, I was because it's like I can identify with what that frustration was. And I, I haven't told you this, but but one thing yeah. that that I was doing. I was so fascinated by the words that you were putting together and just kind of mm. privately sending to us. Mm. Um, I was I was literally taking them and I was forwarding them to my mom. Really? Yes, because okay. my mom my mom <laughs> is is one of those people that is like a um I don't know, she's an important person to me, I guess. So that's mm -hmm. the dumb thing to say, but that's true, right? <laughs> so like <laughs> it's important for me to uh to show my mom cool stuff. Mm. And these emails that were coming back and this whole project that was coming back was something that she particularly really can identify with. Okay. And so when the project kicked off, I kind of showed it to her. And then when these emails started coming in, mm. I started forwarding them to my mom. Mm. And she started emailing back to me with just like, you know, wonder and amazement at what you were doing. Mm. And that particular one. I didn't send because <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> but can you can you tell me more about why you're mad? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I recognize it, right? I recognize mm. when, you know, you go to all this effort to mm. put something up and then these people come over here and they mess it up. And that's like, ah, okay. it's, it's the reason I talk about the resilience is because it's hard for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, to get through that. So it was cool to what kind of watch that happen with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I had to do. I mean, what else? I couldn't just, you know... Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're going to pack up and go home. you gotta, you got you to gotta fight through it, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And but it, it creates emotions, and then you have to kind of work through those emotions in order for those emotions not to negatively affect your decision-making moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. I, I didn't even think about it. I, I think for me, yes, I was very frustrated. I was, I was a bit, you know, pissed off, but... I don't think I even question, you know, I just, okay, I have to move forward. I hope this stupid hunting session over there is going to end up really, really soon. And that's not going to be another one tomorrow. And that's not going to be another on the, the following weekend that I was going to be there. Uh, luckily, it didn't happen. But there also, that was also a place where a lot of people go with their motorbikes, uh, you know, up and down yes. the hills. Yes, oh my goodness. And <laughs> oh my goodness. And the weather was fantastic, you know, October, but, you know, 26, 27 degrees uh, mm -hmm. Celsius. 
uh, was really, really great. So, of course, everyone wanted to go because it's possible to cross the place publicly. There's a road that sort of crosses it and that's public. So, I, you know, it, it wouldn't be closed to anyone. But I also got to think, like, how is this possible? Because this is so interfering with animals that are here. And we should be able to, you know, f forbid to have, like, vehicles that are noisy like this in this place. Because it, it really is disturbing. Same way you wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't put trash in this place. Why are we yeah. polluting with, with, you know, sounds of bikes and, and, and so on. But again, there would be nothing that I could do. And I had, the, I, I was actually sitting down. It was, you know, after a day, so I was able to be there. Not too close, of course, but be there and just sitting on the ground and uh, actually experience what was going on at the time. And... There was a lot of motorbikes, it was so many, and it was really loud. And then the, all the wolves started to howl around me, and it was great. And then there's this church bell from this village, I don't know where, and the wind just brings all in, because it started to howl like at 9 p.m. sharp. And yeah, it was very frustrating, but what else could I have done? <laughs> I couldn't do anything else, so... So that's the low point. Let's talk about the high point. Tell me about the most magical moment that happened while you were out there. The most magical moment. I think, I mean, the first time that I heard maybe six to eight wolves howling, I cannot be very precise. And, the, you know, the acoustics were beautiful because it's like a hill and they sit on the lowest point. So the reflections are really beautiful. So the first time that I heard it, the microphones were down there, but I was hearing it a bit up from the house. And I was so excited to be able to go and then listen to what had been uh, recorded. But still from the house, it was a really, really incredible experience. But there was one day, and it must have been maybe three in the morning, it was pitch black. And also this place doesn't have any sort of lightning, like zero. And so it was pitch black. There was not even a moon. And I go with my flashlight on my head. <laughs> And, you know, iPhone and uh, uh, my phone flashlight as well. I don't see anything, right? Uh, and I know I have to go down um, on this place. I was already more or less confident. I get lost pretty easily, but I, I think I already, like, literally, physically forged the, the path down to where I wanted to be. And I'm going down, and the only thing I see is, like, pairs of bright eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I never had this experience, you know, before. So I think that was very interesting. And I am doing this and I'm deciding, like, should I move my microphones from here or should I let it stay? And they start to howl when I was there. Uh, a little, not a lot, you know, not one of those, you know, magical uh, howling sessions, how I call it. But that was very interesting to be just inside of it. I couldn't see anything besides those very bright dots. And they start to howl, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is, I, I felt like very inside of it, you know. Were they paying attention to you, or were they just not worried about you? 
from what I could tell, from both from my experience and from what the people that worked in the center told me, most of them, they will be shy at first, like in the first days. They get used to your smell and then it's very much the relationship we establish with them. So I was a food provider for them, right? Uh, we would, you know, cut the meat and then throw it over the fences. Some of the wolves would not come in until you're gone. And others, they didn't care. They really wanted to eat. So you, I got to see a lot very quickly. One was, you know, she was not timid at all. She just came in, showed herself, but she was showing that she was bigger than me somehow. They have this very complex, interesting body language. And I think at some point they get used to us, but it's not, it's not they're really their friends with you yet or something like that. But I don't think they will go like to their full behavior, like especially, you know, howling. They use that to communicate with each other, like to locate each other. And if they sense that I'm a danger to them or, or some sort of threat, they, they would keep it down. So if I was around, you know, the howlings would be very shy. But there was also afternoons that I decided that I really wanted to be there on the ground and, and hear that, especially in the first days. And then I sat like for three hours, just sitting on the ground against a tree, waiting and waiting. And then it gets very cold. I'm like, okay, this is not going to happen. And I go home and they howl there. So this happens a lot with sound, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that happened. And I have, I really had to learn to respect that. Usually I prefer not to stay on location because I can understand that, you know, even the microphones, it's a bit of a challenge because I think the animals are not really used to it. And so for a long time, I've been, you know, setting up, studying the place a little bit, leave the things, go away and then come back hours later and pick it up. And here it was very specific that that really needed to happen for me to have, you know, the really good recordings of them. Running, eating, you know, bathing, peeing, whatever, <laughs> everything. <laughs> so you spend all this time there. You come back with these giant stacks of recordings. Uh, what was the process like of calling that down into an album that you were going to release on Bandcamp? Yeah, uh, great and also overwhelming. I had like 120 hours, 140 or something. I cannot even understand how that was a lot. You know, I was recording a lot, a lot, a lot. And I do have a very specific method I go through. I wrote two articles on my site about that because I figure out that it needs to be very detailed because you come home with so much and it's very tempting to skip steps. So the method is like this. I record, I come back, back up and I listen to everything. At the same time, I'm kind of, you know, scanning on Isotope RX. The visualization on it really helps me because I start to see like how the patterns are, the normal things. And then I very easily I can see what's not usual to see in this sort of situation. So I go there and, and I do markers. I recorded a fox for the first time and I can really, I immediately see, you know, something is happening here. Let's see, let's keep here seven minutes. And then I go there. So I place markers on everything, howling, owl, Crispy, textural, wind, anything that I think it's important. Problems as well, if there's, you know, some incoming noise that is not interesting. If it's quick and easy, I, I clean it right away. If it's not salvageable, I had to mark the file as probably not suitable for use. And then I have this table that I input all the information from the recording that I can. So, of course, date and time, atmospheric conditions, 
how I was I recording, like where were my microphones pointing to, what, how was the wind on that day, and does it have noise pollution, yes or no? Is this suitable for the album, yes or no? Can I maybe extract sound effects for this and maybe sell them later, yes or no? And then some other observations in which I really input more like sensations or feelings that I get over it, because that's one of, very important part of my job. It's how I feel listening to these things. So I go on and put stuff like oppressive, light, very beautiful, gloomy, you know, stuff like this. It's very personal, I think, of course, the way we, we percept. And when there's th things that are suitable, sometimes I need to move forward fast. So in this case, I wanted really wanted to deliver, you know, both the Bandcamp album and the album for, for the people who backed up. Because I also write notes on the side, like this would be really good for this track or for this idea and stuff like that. And then I start to cut everything. And this time I had a concept that I never used before. It doesn't need to show like in terms of like narrative. It's not that you're going to guess or anyone is going to guess, but it's not a very documental approach to it. And... I was sleeping really bad on the first days. I don't know why it was very silent and everything, but probably I was a bit anxious or something like that with, with everything. And I think every time I go to a new location, I can have like loads of crazy, surreal nightmares. And I woke up a lot of times around like 1, 2 a.m. I was also very exhausted all the time because it was so much work. I was also doing like my podcast editing work at the same time I was doing all these things. Uh, oh, man. So it was really, <laughs> really tired. And, but sometimes I would wake up like very fuzzy, you know, alone in that house, no light whatsoever. And then I would hear owls outside the window or then the wolves, you know, back down where they were. And it was so fuzzy sometimes. And I would dream with bears and wolves and like people dressed with bears and just everything was so weird that I always had like this very fuzzy, you know, feeling when I, when I woke up and I was like, am I dreaming? Am I awake? And... Also, since I've learned so much that the wolf has this duality, should it be preserved? Is it an evil creature from hell or, or is it sacred in other cultures and means bravery and stuff like that? And a lot of people are very afraid of it. So I thought maybe it's interesting if I do a narrative in which there is someone that is dreaming, having all these dreams and starts to hear these you know, noises that are a bit suspicious. This person is not quite aware, not sure what it is if it's real or not. And then it's kind of a journey of like, at nights, this person is dreaming about this and everything is a little bit fuzzy. And then the person moves around in the forest during the day, trying to understand if what she heard was reality or not. And suddenly she starts to get closer to the wolves somehow. And that's when they start like to express themselves, like open up, like, no, okay, now you know about us and you know that we are the wolves, that we are like, just good animals, like all the other animals, uh, not evil creatures that want to eat children or something like that. And um, <laughs> so we're going to show you like, you know, how we do. So then that's when I started to edit the tracks on the, when they're eating. Because I think if they eat in front of you, then there's, you know, some sort of level of trust. But, you know, food is a very precious thing that keeps us all going. And then so it starts to open up. And that's why most of like those beautiful howlings and it's probably the most attractive thing in the album in general, I would say. Although I think the other soundscapes are also very beautiful. 
but it, there's a bit of it of magical when you have like 10, 12 wolves howling in a place like that at night, right? Yes. Because I thought, see, well, for this to be a really good album, I think maybe I should start like with a big howling session or something like that. But then, nah, I want to really stick to my... I really want people to listen from this, like from track one to track 12. But I do start with a very soft howling that is very musical, very beautiful, and then jump to sunrise and, you know, afternoon and the nights and then it opens up. So it's not really, you know, something very specific, a very specific narrative, but it just helped me kind of guide through the material, I think, in kind of an interesting way, I hope. <laughs> You know what's funny is you sent the album out, yeah. and I did that, right? I listened to it exactly from track one on. The Bandcamp album. The Bandcamp album, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Not recognizing that you had this narrative in your mind, and actually yeah. I, I didn't recognize that until just now mm -hmm. when you said it. And, you know, I put it on, and I'm in my room that I am now, mm -hmm. and I had my computer up, but I had it on the good speakers, and I'm just doing some writing work, right? And so I'm just kind of typing on the computer and listening to it. And... I was a little bit struck by the fact that I didn't hear wolves right off the bat. You know, I just let it flow and I'm sitting here typing and, you know, my wife walks in and she goes, are you just listening to a single cricket? And I was like, it's fine. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> It's a wolves thing. They'll come on later, right? And then I'm typing and I'm, and I'm getting lost in it, right? And I stop, like, specifically focusing on the recordings and they're just kind of flowing into the room with me. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, those wolves start going mm -hmm. and the hair on my arm comes up okay. and, it, and, I, and I, my heart rate starts going up. Wow. And it is, it is this entirely different experience uh -huh. because I just kind of forgot I was I was in that place for a moment until mm -hmm. the wolves like made themselves known yeah, yeah and yeah. it was um that to me was like that was magic in my room it was the craziest thing it was cool as hell oh nice I'm so glad to hear that it does require the listener to be patient yeah with, with the track but if you can give it that level of patience like it is a it's a cool experience man it's really cool yeah yeah I do understand that it does require patience and, and I was very aware and I thought I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot with this one now um, but <laughs> but I, I just I really like to do things my way as well so I just I'm gonna just gonna put it up there but it's but it's great to hear that yeah thank you for sharing <laughs> I guess I just kind of lucked out into into having that experience because um it's the season of COVID and so I'm sitting here in my room by myself for longer yeah. periods of time than I normally would. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is an album that would be well experienced in a car. I mm. think you do have to sit with it in a relatively quiet space, even if you're doing other things, mm -hmm. you know, reading a book or whatever, and let the thing flow over you. But if you have the 
the time and ability to do that, it can be magic, man. It's really, really cool. And it does take a lot of conviction of your approach and courage to put it together in that structure. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that it really paid off. I think it really, really does work well. Great. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear it. Yeah. It's, I mean, especially, again, coming back from, you know, just the dozens and dozens of hours of tracks, like, to cut it into that specific form. Yeah. Um, it's cool. Yeah, that's great. Because I don't really see it as, like, a, it's not a sound effects album. You know, some people are like, yeah, how is your library coming? It's like, good, but it's not really a library. It's It's more just, like, some work with the concept yeah it's a work of art yeah so uh, yeah i'm glad that pull off but i i knew i knew my risks that's when i was starting to feel a bit shaky about how i was going to approach it and some other people told me something a bit similar uh like yeah i started to listen on the background and then like the wolf started and i was like yeah i was blown away and then so i had uh, maybe it caused like similar reactions yeah to more people and that's great it makes me really happy i think some of it is too you know the wolves are louder than everything else and so you find like a a normalized kind of listening level Mm -hmm. that's up to where you can hear and perceive everything and then the wolves come and the wolves come at you yeah yeah yeah, and it's just like but it's not like a slam it's like they start going yeah and then they're like all going. And then there's a moment in one of them where it seems like there's like baby wolves that you can just almost hear them like rolling around. Um, yeah, they are baby wolves. <laughs> yeah. They're just little babies, and it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. They're little assholes, though, but uh, uh, they were four months old when I was there. Uh, wow. Very demanding with their mom. They just want to eat, and you know, they're just doing shit around. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a beautiful project. I'm, I'm super happy that you got the opportunity to go do it and to share it with the rest of us. Yeah. It's great. Um, so what's yeah. next? What are you up to next? So next, if everything goes well, I should be in Germany in some months with Nils Mosch. Yeah, to actually continue the project and record a lot of soundscapes around that area. Um, He also told me recently that this wolf, Gloria, she might have one or two pups, if I'm not mistaken. So we're going to be doing that. And uh, our plan is to work really hard, you know, collect a lot of really beautiful recordings and then compose together, which will be completely first time for me to be composing with another person. So I think actually our skills are complementing each other really well. So we hope that in August we will have a really nice multi-channel installation in Germany. Yeah. Nice. I do have, it's okay to confess this here, I do have this dream of like going every place in Europe where all wolves are living and doing their thing and record. I know there's a lot of location, it's a lot of countries, but why not? Have you heard about in America, in in the Yellowstone Park, when they reintroduced wolves there? In a way that the ecosystem was very rebalanced, was it like this? Yes, because at some point they had eradicated the wolves at Yellowstone Mm -hmm. and all of the deer 
overran everything yeah. and ate all the vegetation. Exactly, yeah. And that changed the flow of the rivers because it started to create a bunch of runoff because there was no vegetation yeah. holding the soil by the rivers. Yeah, yeah. So when they reintroduced the wolves, the balance of the fauna reset mm -hmm. and the rivers restructured because there was enough vegetation to hold them in place again. Yeah, yeah. This is very interesting. And I think it's very... A direct example of like if you take one single species from a system things will not go well and they will change in a way that is not beneficial to anyone or to nature or to anything and i think yeah the wolf is really big symbol of this in somehow because this happened there but there's been other accounts in europe um, also in portugal in spain uh, they are kind of being introduced and reintroduced and protected because there was a lot of killing, like uh, up until the 60s, it, it was a thing to be able to, you know, kill wolves. Again, like the Christian tradition that were regarded as, you know, an evil creature from hell or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it does, and I think the wolf is a very direct example of how this happened. It just rebalanced everything. Something we need to learn more, I think, be more attentive to that. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful project. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for jumping on and talking to us. Yeah, yeah. I wish you luck as you continue forward. Mm -hmm. Tumbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 